This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I got two questions as titles to these presentations, uh, but this one I'm going to take you probably down a little bit of a different path as well, and we're going to talk about noncompliance in patients with diabetic foot ulcers. Again, I have nothing to disclose as related to the presentation. So I have a feeling that you read the title of this talk, and in your mind's eye, you immediately pictured probably your favorite patient, Mr. Jones or Mrs. Smith, who when you hear that term noncompliant, you immediately, your arterial blood pressure kind of raises because she's on your schedule on Monday morning. Um, These clearly are problem patients, difficult patients, troublemakers, but no matter what term that you ascribe to these patients, we know that it is a negative patient judgment that is a very frustrating situation oftentimes for us as providers because we know everything we're telling these patients to do is going to be the best way to resolve the wound, prevent infection, and ultimately show healing. So I will say there has clearly been a a change in semantics or terminology in this arena over the past few years, and we are definitely moving away from the term compliance. Compliance is a unidirectional kind of thought or process, and ultimately, if a patient is deemed noncompliant, the physician or the caregiver is the one who owns that, as opposed to adherence, which is a more patient-focused philosophy where you're giving advice, the patient may or may not choose to adhere to that advice. So again, I think in the literature, you'll start to see more of the terms about adherence instead of compliance. So I think if we're going to understand non-adherence, we should probably first define adherence, which would be the degree to which a person follows a caregiver's advice in terms of taking medication, observing a diet, or realizing a change in lifestyle. It's probably a whole lot easier said than done if we think about our own personal experiences uh, with the challenges that we each have. But what also is really important to understand that oftentimes non-adherence can be an intentional result of a rational decision. Uh, that is based on the patient's personal beliefs related to the disease and or its treatments. So not all non-adherence is necessarily really meant to cause you uh, stress in your life. So what is the importance of adherence? Again, we've, I've briefly mentioned the frustrating factor that we have um, as providers because they don't listen. They don't do what we ask them to do. But according to the World Health Organization, uh, among those living with chronic diseases like diabetes, non-adherence rates are up to 50%. The problem is that we know that it delays the resolution of a problem, and oftentimes these non-adherent behaviors will lead to lead to more complications that require more aggressive and costly treatments. Um, And this ultimately results in our uh, increased burden to our already overburdened healthcare resources. So this clinical photo is a patient that is currently in our hospital. Uh, She's a 33-year-old type 1 patient who has been admitted three times in the past six weeks for DKA. This wound started because they put an IV in her foot. So again, uh, significant problems and in, in, uh, DKA resulting from non-adherence with her medications. 
So we're constantly trying to predict who in our clinics might be or might exhibit the profile of a non-adherent patient. So we want to kind of think intuitively that they would be younger patients, minority patients, illiterate or lower on the socioeconomic uh, status. However, this does not pan out in the literature. Interestingly, those findings on the right-hand column are what are probably more stronger predictors, at least in the literature, for non-adherence among our patients. Those with a poor or lack of social and family support. I've always maintained, again, one of the saddest things that I do is perform a transmetatarsal amputation, go out to the waiting area, and there's no one there. And as opposed to doing a tip of a toe amputation, going out to the waiting room, and there's 40 people out there. It's not rocket science to know who's going to do better in that situation when they have home support and people who are advocating for them and looking out for them. Ultimately, they're going to do better. Again, going back to patients' own perceptions about illness and medication and do they have a touch of sugar or do they have you know, a really good handle on the disease process. So this was the original article, which I think a lot of us kind of, we were awakened by the fact that there is a problem with adherence and diabetic foot ulcerations to get to the kind of topic today. So this was a very clever but small study that Dave Armstrong did, and what he essentially wanted to know is, do the patients that we give these removable cast walkers to, do they use them for their ambulation? Again, a small study with superficial ulcers, only 20 patients, but what he cleverly did was ask the patients to wear a pedometer on their waist and then he secretly, essentially, implanted a second pedometer onto the removal cast walker. And then he compared the data about <laughs> were the patients, in fact, wearing the removal cast walker for their ambulation by comparing the two pedometers. So the study showed that these patients, on average, only walked about 1,200 steps a day. So most of us wearing Fitbits are trying to get 10,000 steps a day, right? So to me, it's an interesting finding that the patients already, they're not walking all that much. But the significant discord is that patients, the number reading off the waist pedometer showed 874 steps, and the one that was attached to the removal cast walker showed just over 340 steps. So essentially what the small study showed was that patients wore their removal cast walkers 28% of the time that they were walking. Most commonly, probably what you all encounter is what I do, we dispense all these great offloading devices, and they maybe wear them when they leave their house. But most of these patients probably do more ambulation in, in their house throughout the course of a day than they do outside. So Ryan Cruz and his colleagues at uh, Scholl took this initial study to the next level, and they wanted to make the link between wearing that removable cast walker or offloading and healing. They also wanted to look into some validated quality of life tools, which you see on the left-hand side, um, in order to establish whether or not offloading would, in fact, be an influence on healing and quality of life, and what were maybe some of the um, mitigating factors to why our patients were not using those removable cast walkers. So they did a little bit of a larger study, almost 80 patients. Uh, they found a little higher rate, 59% of the time they were using the removable cast walker. But interestingly, they found that the more adherent patients 
probably acknowledged the seriousness of their wound a little bit more. So they were larger wounds. They were more severe baseline. In other words, in terms of depth, they were more significant types of wounds. These patients have more neuropathy based on the quality of life study and the neuropathy scales that they used. And they also found that patients who exhibited postural instability did not wear their removable cast walker as much, probably for fear of fa falling. But overall, clearly, the more adherent you are with the offloading device, the more those wounds did heal over a six-week period of time. So here's where I want to kind of take a different path with you. I've always been intrigued by the relationship, the bi-directional relationship between depression and diabetes. And I'm going to submit again that it, the reason why a lot of our patients are probably not adherent is because of this uh, issue with depression. So it is bi-directional, meaning people with diabetes are more likely to become depressed, and people with depression are more likely to develop diabetes. It's a busy slide, but I'll highlight for you. Again, the evidence-based medicine shows that people with diabetes have a two to three time higher incidence of depression than the general population. And we know that there's a negative influence on overall care. The interesting part to me is now we're exploring potential biologic relationships or at the basic science level, uh, chemical markers of what's happening among patients with diabetes uh, in developing depression as well. And I would also submit that as wound care providers, we're probably not doing a great job in screening for depression and asking some simple questions. I'm not expecting all of us to, in the wound clinic to be mental health care providers, but I think there are some clear questions that we can ask, which maybe we can help these patients get some of the mental health care uh, that they may need to help facilitate adherence. So these authors looked at that role of depression and diabetic foot ulcers. So again, the biologic risk factors for DFUs we know, including duration of diabetes, deformity, neuropathy, arterial inflow problems. But the authors want to potentially explore the area of, are there psychologic factors, that, uh, such as depression, that may help explain these high risks of morbidity and mortality among patients with DFUs? So their primary hypothesis is that there is going to be a higher incidence of depression among patients with diabetic foot ulcers, and secondarily, as we're trying to always link, is the glycemic control uh, uh, play a significant role in worse outcomes as well. So they studied these patients, a uh, fairly large study, over 250 patients. They followed them for 18 months, and they looked at the usual demographics. They did, again, some validated tools in terms of depression screening and looking at hemoglobin A1Cs and the change in that A1C over 18 months. So we see about two-thirds of the patients do not screen positive for depression. This is a, a study of their first foot ulceration. But about a third of the patients, and 25% or one in four, essentially, screen positive for major depression at the onset of their first ulceration. To me, this is very significant. And over that 18-month period of time, we see statistics similar in the DFU world, about 15% mortality, a high rate of recurrence as well. So again, what did they conclude? A third of our patients screen positive for depression when they develop a diabetic foot ulcer. And that's a threefold increase in mortality among those patients. The interesting part, again, is we cannot blame glycemic control for poor outcomes. So there was no association between depression and uh, hemoglobin A1C. And, and even though this chart, again, shows baseline in 18 months, probably any of us in the room would be fairly happy with all of these A1Cs. But there's not a major change among the patients with depression 
depression and uh, wounds over the 18-month period of time. So they conclude again, there is significant evidence that's emerging that depression plays a significant role. We're not sure exactly why, and exploring probably the biochemistry of it is, is where we're headed. So here's another more recent study. Um, I've always talked about, I thought my patients not only had neuropathy in their feet, but they had neuropathy in their brains because they don't do what we ask them to do. Uh, but this, we may not be so far off from the truth. So this study focuses on the American Diabetes Association and the International Working Group on the Diabetic Foot and their recommendations, which include self-care, foot examinations, um, adherence to recommendations for complex wound care. All of these things are very high cognitively ordered uh, things that we're asking our patients to do. So with these increase in self-care burden and wanting the patients to do what we ask them to do, how do we evaluate whether or not they have that cognitive ability? So to that end, they studied 100 patients essentially in two groups. One uh, group had diabetes but no ulcer, and the other group had uh, diabetes with a diabetic foot ulcer. And they did this extensive, again, many validated tools that they used to compare the patients in terms of cognitive ability. And to cut to the chase, these things that I've bolded for you, found in the, this study to be statistically significant compared to the patients with diabetes but without diabetic foot ulcers. Patients with ulcers remember less, have decreased ability to concentrate, have more difficulty with learning, have less inhibitions, have slower cognitive and psychomotor responses, and less verbal fluency. So do we think that that should influence wound care and wound healing and ability to perform what we're asking them to do? Clearly it does. And they termed that they coined this new term, which was new to me, talking about the diabetic foot person's paradox. Basically that we have more, they have more challenges with fewer cognitive resources. So how do we facilitate adherence in these patients? Basically, the literature will support a multifaceted strategy towards improving adherence. Cognitive interventions, which focus on education, and basically it boils down to explaining to your patient why you're asking them or telling them to do something. When they understand the why, they're more likely to listen and be adherent to that. Behavioral interventions alter or eliminate behaviors that work against the desired outcome. So again, understanding about nutrition, um, the low-hanging fruits, and things like that, that we can intervene to help influence adherence. And then finally, affective interventions, which help the patient alter or accept feelings uh, related to having a wound. So the fear and the helplessness and the burden that they experience, all of these ways that we can help uh, improve adherence would be focused on these three different ways to intervene with the patient. So how do we treat non-compliant or non-adherent patients with diabetic foot ulcers? Again, the title of the talk. Essentially, you have to establish a patient-focused care model. So the patients in the middle, again, I know we've heard this so many times, um, the patients in the middle, each of the practitioners, and we're all important cogs in the wheel, but when there's one that's uh, missing, again, the, the road is going to be a bit bumpy. Sometimes simply asking about goals and expectations um, from the patient is very helpful. Um, multi-directional open communication, asking open-ended questions, which help, again, not only you 
you to explore the patient's goals, but them to share them with you. And then I'm more involved. And I have heard things as simple as I want to walk my daughter down the aisle next March, you know, without a boot on. So now I'm invested in that process and we want to achieve that goal together. So to summarize, I know it's probably a bit small, but again, this chart kind of looks at why are patients not adhering. It boils down to three kind of factors. Those that are involved with the patient, and I've hopefully focused a bit on the behavioral side today because I do believe strongly that the patients who have depression will, it's likely a very key influence as to why the patients are not adherent. So getting them the referrals, managing their depression can obviously uh, and hopefully help facilitate adherence. Provider factors, it doesn't spend a whole lot of time, but I think it's important to self-reflect and kind of see our own influences and biases towards treating these patients. And then system factors, we didn't talk about that either, but oftentimes our patients are uh, reliant upon public transportation. And when a patient doesn't show up in your clinic, you know, we tend to throw some stones, but it could simply be that the bus didn't show up um, and that they're on that same bus route for next Thursday as well as this past Thursday. So there are obviously system factors which play a a role, not to mention finances and the expensive uh, antibiotics and wound care regimens and complex things that we ask our patients to do. So some simple advice to take back again on Monday morning to hopefully help influence and facilitate better adherence. First of all is to understand and and appreciate that I do not believe not all non-adherence is spiteful. It's not meant to make our lives miserable. But we really have to spend some time to try and understand the barriers to adherence. And again, explaining why you want a patient to do a certain thing, I think they get more buy-in, and they will certainly be a more active participant in that process. Asking simple questions like, what is the problem here? Why are you not wearing your offloading boot? Are there limitations in your job or your occupation? Or why are you not able to do that? What is limiting you and getting in the way of you doing these things? Oftentimes, coming to a compromise can be very helpful including family and other significant folks in that process, whether they be case managers or family, would be ideal. Um, In that education process, clearly can help facilitate it as well. I try and simplify complex wound care if a patient has bilateral wounds. I try and do the same thing for both feet. Even though it may not be exactly what I would pick, oftentimes keeping it more simple is, is definitely better. Most of us are creatures of habit. We often prescribe the same or similar wound care regimen. Um, having pre-printed handouts that, again, patients can take home and keep literally on the refrigerator or in the bathroom where they're going to be doing their wound care or by the bedside to help reinforce through pre-printed information can be very helpful as well. Screening for depression, again, not everybody in this room needs to be a mental health care provider, but I think there are some significant signs of depression that we could all acknowledge and recognize and get these folks um, to the appropriate places. And ultimately, it's kind of like dealing with our kids, right? Get them to solve their own problems, and they're going to be more adherent to those regimens. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, any questions? I, I have a question for you. Um, what pearls do you have to combat non-adherence uh, associated with the removable devices that we all hand out and patients oftentimes say they don't use when yeah. they get home? So I think the biggest key is um, are they wearing that offloading device when they mm-hmm. come to see us? 
And lots of our patients, it's kind of like, to me, it's like not brushing your teeth before you go to the dentist. Like, who does that, right? But some people will not wear their offloading boot when they come to the wound center. I don't understand it. Um, But if they're not wearing it, then again, I would ask, okay, you know, first of all, was there a problem in financially obtaining it? Mm -hmm. And are there other resources that potentially we can use? Um, We can take it to a different step. Oftentimes, we know the total contact cast is the best for offloading plantar foot wounds. And why does it work? Because it's forced compliance forced adherence. Um, So clearly that works. Mm -hmm. Um, But oftentimes, again, people may be perceived as um, weak or lessened, and they may have jobs that they're not able to to present in a cast or removal cast walker. So the compromise, I think, is really important. You know, okay, I get it. You can't wear that for a business meeting, Mm -hmm. but is it possible that you can wear it all other times of the day? Um, The making it an instant total contact cast um, to hopefully force more compliance is another option. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.